Good afternoon. It's Monday, November 29th. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I did. Stuffed myself with turkey, potatoes, stuffing, cranberry sauce, pie. I'm going to have to buy a bigger pair of pants. I'll work it off. I always do. I told you last time, I believe, that I'm on a break from Twitter, but not the other socials, and I don't spend a ton of time on there, but a couple of weeks ago I ran across something that I found really interesting and potentially terrifying. It was a meme, you know, just a graphic, and I don't remember the exact words but it said something to the effect of you are not your bad thoughts and feelings. And then I think it went on after that, but that's, that's the part that grabbed my attention. And I actually went looking for it. I wanted to find the thing that I saw so I would get it exactly right since I knew I was going to talk about it today. But when I searched for it, I found almost nothing except references over and over to you are not your thoughts and feelings, but you are not your bad thoughts and feelings was, uh, didn't show up for the most part. And when it did show up, it was like some goofy thing on a yoga website. Just sipping my my coffee here. Had to take a little break. I told you about a book, and of course I can't remember the name of it, but I told you about this, I believe, in a blog post a while back. And while I'm talking, I'm going to search for the title of the book because it was really terrific. And I think If you can go into it with an open mind, it has a lot to offer anybody who's interested in what's happening culturally in the West right now in in a general sense, because it frames it in the context of things that go back at least to, uh, romanticism, post-enlightenment, thinking about the individual and self and, uh, and identity, what makes us us. So, but it is written, at least in some parts, from a Christian perspective, and there's an unfortunate section near the end. Thankfully, it is near the end, and thankfully, it's pretty short, but there's a section he probably shouldn't have put in there um, that, that comes from a pretty, I guess you would call it a conservative uh, Christian position. And I, I think he's wrong about some things in there. I think he, he oversimplifies some complex issues. And I wish he hadn't put it in there because the rest of the book is terrific. But if you are capable, and I, I, if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you are, if you're capable of going into something, understanding that you're not necessarily going to agree 
with everything that that a writer puts forward in a book like this. I think there's there's a lot you can get out of it. The book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, written by Carl Truman. And I thought about it when I read that quote. You are not your bad feelings and thoughts, or thoughts and feelings. Now, on the surface, this is common sense. You know, when, you, when you're having a hard time in life, you can get so wrapped up in your thoughts and feelings that they do seem like reality. They color everything. And I think any good therapist would tell you that you are not your thoughts and feelings. I don't think any good therapist would tell you you are not your bad thoughts and feelings, and I'll tell you why in a second. But before I do that, I want to get to it in a roundabout way. The conservative writer, pundit, Andrew Sullivan, is a gay man and a conservative, and he was a conservative and a gay man back in the 80s when he was advocating for gay marriage. He wanted uh, gay people to be able to legally marry. And he made, and others made at the time, a conservative case for that. And predictably, at the time, he was roundly mocked by, uh, by mainstream liberals and the gay establishment, as it were, it was a hopelessly square idea that you were going to domesticate, particularly male homosexuals. This was outrageous. And so just as an aside, when, when people try to tell you that the push in the 80s and 90s for civil union was really just a matter of activists pushing for all they thought they could reasonably get from a right-wing America. That's a lie. They pushed for civil unions because they wanted civil unions. They did not want marriage. They had no interest whatsoever in marriage. How that changed is probably a fascinating story, but I don't really know how it changed. I wish I did. I don't even have a theory as to why that changed. The only thing I can think of, and I, I know it's true to a, to a certain extent, but I don't think it was the main driving force, but the only thing I can think of was a, just an abject hostility to religion and kind of wanting to, wanting to uh, give a middle finger to religion. Say, oh yeah, you had marriage, now you don't. And I think for some people uh, on the fringes, the real lunatics, that, that certainly was the case. But I don't think that explains the overwhelming majority of uh, gay people and liberals in general who, um, who supported it. And even some conservatives, too, to be fair. Not many of them, but some of them. Some of those who back in Sullivan's time uh, were pushing the idea. Now, I think there were some good arguments for 
for legalizing same-sex marriage. Call it what you want, marriage equality, gay marriage, same-sex marriage. I'm not going to get, it's irrelevant to me what it's called. I think there were some legitimately good arguments for it. I think there were also some really bad arguments. And it's unfortunate, I think, that the worst argument of all was the one that seemed to sway people the most. And for good reason, it was an emotional argument. And it went like this, because we saw it after, after the smoke had cleared and after the fight was over and after the forces of good had won and the forces of evil had been vanquished. We heard it. Do you remember that? Our president said it. Love wins. Love. Love wins. And around that time, I saw a clip I think it was on the local news, of the Hamilton guy. I want to say his name is Lin-Manuel Miranda. I may have his last name wrong. I apologize. I really should do my research before I do these podcasts. And he was speaking, I believe, at at an awards show. And he won an award, probably for Hamilton. And he said... And I'm paraphrasing here. And I can't really express it, I don't think, with the amount of emotion that went into it when he was saying it, because he was like choking up halfway through. But here's my paraphrase of what he said. And I'm not exaggerating. Love is love is love is love. Is love, is love, is love, is love, is love, is love. And he had to stop because he got drowned out by a standing ovation. And if you want an in-depth exploration of how we arrived here, Carl Truman's going to do a much better job than I will. I highly recommend you read his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But now, we've got this other thing. And it, there, you know, normally it's something I wouldn't even think about. Why did I notice that? Why did it stick out to me? You are not your bad thoughts and feelings. It's that word bad. That's the word. Because, uh, as I said earlier, any good therapist would agree you're not your thoughts and feelings. But I don't think a single good therapist would have you start labeling thoughts and feelings as, as good or bad. Right? That sounds like the sort of um, stereotype that people had when I was growing up about Catholic kids. You have to keep bad thoughts away right? There's not actually any truth to that stereotype, but, but that's what it makes me think of. This idea that bad, which is ludicrous, this idea that thoughts are good or bad, that there's moral weight to uncontrolled thoughts that go through your head, often obsessive thoughts. 
Because if you go down that road and you start giving moral weight to these things, then you're just going to head for trouble because there are certain thoughts that shall not be thought. And if they are thought, that's really, really bad. Any therapist is going to tell you, just let them go. Don't get too attached to the good or the bad. Um, although they're not going to frame it that way. They'd say negative and positive, right? Because there isn't a moral weight that you put on these things. If I think, uh, if I think, boy, I would really like to tell my boss to fuck off. That's not a bad thought. Telling your boss to fuck off is likely a bad action. Wouldn't recommend doing it in most cases. I've done it myself. But I had the excuse of being a teenager. But thinking the thought is not morally bad. And I think probably, I'm guessing in, and this is just a guess, but in uh, in Catholic moral theological terms, nurturing a thought like that would carry some moral weight. Like just kind of intentionally rolling around in a thought like that, like a pig in the slop, probably be considered not a, not a good thing morally. Not probably on the level of a mortal sin, but not a good idea. But isn't that what it is? When you put a moral weight on your thoughts like that, you've stepped officially, I think, into the realm of religion. We've been, we've made these things a religion for years now. We don't call them that, but they certainly are. And now we're going even farther, and we're going into the part of the equation that terrifies me. And that's the part where we start looking at ourselves and asking uh, which of our thoughts and feelings are not positive and negative, but good or bad. It's a feature of Western culture that we are so comfortable, that we're so well off, that we don't have the kind of life or death battles to fight that most people in the world do, just to keep food in their stomachs, to get clean water, to have decent shelter and clothes. Because we don't have those concerns, we look for something for the, uh, the part of our brains that is trained to survive, right, for evolutionary purposes, that doesn't go away. We have to turn that somewhere. So where we turn to it, where, where we turn it to, rather, is to ourselves. The threat is no longer external. Now the threat is internal, sort of, because the way we play the game is 
we're all guilty, but some people are more guilty than others. And so we ourselves are guilty, right, of white fragility, for instance, of racism, but, but we are a little less guilty if we buy into that and spend most of our time lecturing and pointing the figure at other racists, who we think of as being the real racists. Let's be honest about that. I have probably mentioned before on a podcast or somewhere else the uh, excellent book by uh, the Frenchman, Pascal Bruckner, if I'm uh, pronouncing his name correctly, which is called, again, Bad Memory, Tyranny of Guilt, I believe. The Tyranny of Guilt, which was published early 2000s, I want to say. Um, 2010 in English, so probably a little uh, sooner than that. Highly recommend this. This is largely about French society, uh, but virtually everything in it applies to America. What's interesting about it is that he continually points to America as, um, if not quite the exception to the rule, uh, at least a place where the free thinker has, um, has more space and more breathing room where people aren't quite, uh, aren't quite as willing to just go along with the crowd, which I find a little amusing because if that were true in 2010, which it may have been, I can't even remember anymore. I, I certainly don't think it is now. But he talks a lot about immigration, which, um, to the to the extent it's been a problem, it's been a, a bigger problem for some of the European countries than it has for America. For all the the you know over the top craziness we hear about the the immigration problem in the U.S., it's really nothing compared to what they've dealt with in. Europe, and he makes the argument in this book, The Tyranny of Guilt, that um, that it is largely due to the unwillingness to explain and defend the principles on which the uh, the countries and their culture are founded, um, and certainly that's uh, that's become a problem. In America. I mean, you know, as a kid growing up, uh, I never thought of myself as liberal or left-wing, but I suppose looking back, that's what I was. And But my attitude was always, even when I was at my most um, kind of self-righteous, you know, uh, kind of convinced that the government was doing all these evil things and... Uh, arm in arm with the evil corporations and all this kind of stuff that you think when you're 17 years old. Um, even then, it never occurred to me that there was something wrong with the fundamental principles upon which our country was founded. What was wrong, I thought, was how we had gotten away from those principles. I don't know if that's quite the case today with a certain strain of liberal, at least the one that, the ones that have the biggest mouths, 
uh, I think now it's more a case of, of uh, everything was founded on racism, and therefore everything kind of, we need to throw the baby away with the bathwater, as it were. But the, the really um, important point that I think is made in this book, The Tyranny of Guilt, is that guilt is totally self-indulgent. And I would argue that what he's really talking about is more shame than guilt. That's a, that's a translation choice, but I would argue it's more shame what he's talking about. People who are ashamed of their country. People who want to tear down statues of the founding fathers because some of them owned slaves. People who want to tear down statues of people who are completely against slavery because they're idiots and can't tell the difference between statues and don't care. They just want to tear shit down. But that shame is paralyzing and it's totally self-indulgent. And what it does is it enables you to feel properly contrite for your part. You can claim that you're a racist, not one of the really bad ones. And by doing that, it's like going to confession for a Catholic. By doing that, by saying that out loud, you've been absolved. And in the course of doing that, you've done absolutely nothing except make yourself feel better. You haven't actually done anything. But you feel as though you've contributed in some small way to making the world a little bit better. In reality, you've made the world a little bit worse because you have turned inward. For decades now, but especially in the past 10 years, we've been told over and over and over, and always, by the way, by people on the left side of the political spectrum, we need to have an honest conversation about race. It's funny how that honest conversation has yet to happen. Nobody wants to have the honest conversation about race. They want to yell at each other and point at each other, and then, oh, that's exhausting. Sit down, put your feet up. Boy, I did a lot today. You didn't do anything. You didn't address the problem at all. And it's true that the first step to addressing the problem, and I think it is a problem in our country, the problem of race and the problem of bigotry, but the first step to dealing with it is to have that honest conversation. We don't want to have the honest conversation. Uh-oh. Let's have an honest conversation about race means I'm going to say my part and then you're either going to agree with me and mend your ways or I'll call you a racist. That's what it means. And as I've lectured myself many times here on this podcast, when you don't listen to the other side, you soon stop knowing what their arguments are. And when you no longer know what your opponent's arguments are, you create caricatures of them. And the caricatures are so ludicrous and so out of touch with reality 
that it drives you even farther apart from your ideological enemies because they laugh at you, because you're presuming all these things about them that aren't remotely true. But if the conversation's going to be had, the first thing is to understand that some feelings are going to get hurt. And we don't want to feel the bad feelings and think the bad thoughts. So this kind of therapeutic approach to identity and art, especially, which is really the main thing I'm interested in, and culture, it has other effects as well. It has sociological effects. And I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that while there is certainly, without question, less racism in the country than there was when I was a kid growing up, the problem is worse. In other words, the divisions that are there are far worse, I would say. Far worse. There's almost no segment of society anymore where it's acceptable, socially acceptable, to uh, espouse racist views. Um, it is illegal to engage in racist hiring practices. Systemic racism, dis despite what we're being told these days, uh, no longer exists in this country and hasn't since the Civil Rights Act was passed. And individual uh, racism, or I would prefer the term bigotry because racism always, always carries with it, in my mind, an implication that, uh, that the racist has power, which I think is seldom the case in this country anymore. Uh, but that bigotry... I think it's probably at a much lower rate than it was, and yet the divisions are, are greater than ever. And a big part of the reason why is because we're all terrified, and for good reason in, in some cases, we're all terrified to have that honest conversation about race that we keep hearing we have to have. Maybe someday we'll have it. Look, there aren't any bad thoughts or feelings per se. Acting on a thought that uh, results in an immoral action, that's bad. But I, I, I don't think we want to go down this road. don't think we want to go down this road. It's really, if you're worried about a uh, totalitarian society, which in one form or another I've been told since I was a kid we're either living in or on the verge of living in. We're always right on the edge of a police state, right? But if it were to ever happen, it's going to be self-imposed. And I don't mean politically. I mean each individual 
is going to sit around scanning themselves for bad thoughts and doing their best to eliminate their bad thoughts and their bad feelings. What a horrible, horrible, horrible society we'll have. What a miserable group of people we'll be. And really, we're already there to a large degree. It's funny how all the identity-based stuff is presumably supposed to lead to more happiness, right? There's more freedom, there's more rights, there's more happiness. Why do we seem so much more miserable? With every passing year, we seem more and more miserable, those of us in the West. Maybe we all need to get on a plane and go down to Africa, right? Spend a few months trying to find food to eat, trying to find clean water. Might come back with a different perspective. Again, I hope you had a wonderful holiday weekend. We certainly did here up at Weasel Manor. I will see you again next week. Until then, have a wonderful week. Remember, I love you all very much. So long.